The title of this morning's sermon is Rejoice Over the Results Versus the Motivation. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke 15 and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Working our way through this parable, I choose to read the same verses each week because I hope that as we work through, you'll see uh, other wonderful things and become that much more familiar with it as we, as we preach on it. I know it's taken us a, a few weeks, but there's some incredible treasures here that I don't want us to miss. I heard John MacArthur say one time, he spent 10 years in Luke, so he makes me look like I'm this, you know? Um, and he said, hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. You may be seated. Father, I've looked forward to sharing this message with your people. I've been challenged by it, as I believe it has been uh, working on my heart. I saw a significant truth here in this parable, and, and I would like to say, hopefully not presumptuously, that you would have me uh, share it this morning. I know it has ministered to me, Lord, as, as I've been challenged to look past people's motivations to the results that uh, you produce through us, and I pray that that could be relayed this morning, I think about VBS approaching next week and the other ways that this can apply to us personally and to us as a church corporately. All the truths that are here, Lord, I hope you've revealed to me during my studying and allowing me to share them this morning. But if there's anything else that would be on your heart that you'd have me teach, Lord, bring that to my mind or more importantly to my lips. Make the people here receptive to hear it, uh, hear it from you, I would say, Lord. Just let me be your vessel to, to minister to your people this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are working through what's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, and as I prayed, I saw something in this account that I want to elaborate on, especially with VBS approaching next week, which, and so I thought we could look, and really significantly looking at the results versus the, the motivations. Um, instead of jumping right into it in the parable, I wanted to look at a few other examples in Scripture to kind of build momentum to this. So you can mark your spot in Luke 15, we will come back to it, and first I'd like you to turn to Numbers 11 with me. Turn to Numbers 11. While you turn there, we will not be looking at any of the same verses, but we were in this chapter a few weeks or maybe a couple months back when we looked at Israel crying out for meat, being disappointed with the manna, and then God punishing them. That's what took place in the earlier verses when he sent that fire that burned through the camp. We're not going to read any of the same verses, but we are picking up after those verses that we looked at before. And look with me in verse 11. Numbers 11, verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, 
Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all of this people on me? How's, how's Moses feeling in this moment toward God? Just be honest. How does he feel at this moment toward God? Yeah, frustrated. He's overwhelmed. Verse 12, he says, did I conceive this people? Notice the language of childbirth that allows Moses to be compared to a mother to all, this children, all these children. And I mention that because there are many mothers who can feel just like Moses does at this moment. And so in verse 12, he says, did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Verse 13, where am I going to get meat to give all this people? They weep before me, and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And then notice this. He says, if you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. How is Moses feeling? Not necessarily toward God, but just in his ministry in general. Yeah, exhausted, exasperated, overwhelmed, stressed out. The, the load of leading these people by himself has been so crushing that he reaches this point, which he did at other times as well, that he asks God to actually do what with him if he won't help him. He says, kill him, just kill me, just please end my misery. I cannot handle this any longer. I cannot handle dealing with these people, shepherding them for one more minute. Without your help, I'm being crushed between their grumbling and complaining. <laughs> He shares with God in this frustrated way how he's feeling and uses language of a mother such as conceive, give them birth, carry them, nurse them. And he, in a sense, reminds me of a mother who would have a bunch of children and be angry, not just with the children themselves, but sometimes when mothers are really upset uh, at the way their children are behaving, who might they turn and then point some of that anger toward? The children's what? Yeah, father. Now, I'm not saying that's ever happened in our home, but it has happened in other people's homes, I've heard before. And so, <laughs> and so Moses is like, hey, he doesn't, he's not just angry with these children, Israel. He's angry with their heavenly father, and he turns, and he just shares, pours his heart out. You know, that's one of the really encouraging things with Moses is his transparency and candidness with the Lord at times. I think that can be an example for us to pour out our hearts to God when we're frustrated and overwhelmed and filled with anxiety. So look how God responds. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring these men to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. I will come down. I'll take, I'll talk with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and I will put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And so God tells Moses to appoint these elders, I believe, which prefigures elders within the church. Uh, I mean, the struggle that Moses would have leading these people by himself prefigures the struggle that an, an, a pastor would have or an elder would have leading the people of God by himself. And so God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that I put on you for your ministry, and I'm going to put it on these 70 men as well. And when God does that, something happens with the men who have received some of this Holy Spirit that had been put on Moses. They begin prophesying. Look at verse 25. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. 
And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. So I think it just showed as a sign that they had received the Holy Spirit. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the tent. But interestingly, not everyone likes to see these men prophesying. And so watch what happens, verse 27. A young man, I'm assuming very well-meaning, he runs to Moses and tells him, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So he, probably because of his affection for Moses, thought that Moses was the only one who should be prophesying, so he's concerned about these other men prophesying. And he's not the only one who's concerned about it. Interestingly, Moses' right-hand man, Joshua, is also concerned about it. Verse 28, Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, he said, my Lord Moses, stop them. Now, here's the question. Go ahead and give me your attention. Based on how overwhelmed and stressed out Moses is at this moment, on the brink of burnout, or perhaps already burnt out, seeking to die versus having to continue this ministry, how do you think Moses is going to feel about other men who have received God's Holy Spirit and can help him with this burden? How do you think, huh? He's going to be thrilled. Yeah, look at verse 29. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? I wish or would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so what does Moses basically say? I wish more people were prophesying. I wish the Holy Spirit fell on every Israelite male because I can get, you know, use all the help I can get. I want God's spirit falling on everyone. I would love to see everyone involved. And in this is a good example for us of how, about how we should feel regarding people's giftings. And if you were at Sunday school this morning, which I wasn't aware Jameson was going to be teaching on this, I do think that it provided a very nice segue into this sermon where he talked about the responsibility of elders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the saints can be doing that ministry versus elders feeling responsible with all of the work of the ministry themselves. And this brings us to lesson one. Rejoice over people lesson one using their gifts. Rejoice over people lesson one using their gifts. So much work to be done for God's kingdom. We should rejoice when people use their gifts to serve the Lord and advance that kingdom. I want to show you one more example before I provide some more application. Turn to Mark 3. Sometimes to drive one main point home requires looking at multiple places in Scripture, but you can't give as much attention to those places if you're going to cover all of them in one sermon, which I wanted to do. So we might flip around a little bit and go through the verses pretty quickly, but hopefully I'll be able to explain them well enough that you'll understand what's happening. I've told you many times before that what took place in the Old Testament prefigures truths or realities or accounts in the New Testament. And there is a New Testament account that I believe was prefigured or foreshadowed by what we saw there in Numbers 11. But first, I just want you to see that if there's ever anyone who had a ministry that approached the overwhelming nature of Moses' ministry, it was whose ministry? Jesus' ministry. There was never a time after his ministry began that he could turn around and not have countless people coming to him with their needs. 
It got so bad that his family thought he was crazy, had lost his mind because he didn't even have time to eat or drink. Look in, verse, in Mark 3, verse 20. Jesus went home. The crowd gathered again so that Jesus and the disciples could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he must be out of his mind. And so it got so bad, all of the pressing needs, all of the people pulling on him. He tries to return home for some rest, but the crowd gathers there, and he never has a moment to to sleep, to, to eat, to drink. His family becoming very concerned about him, not just physically, but his family. His family isn't just concerned about him physically. They're concerned about him mentally. They say he must be out of his mind to be at. Nobody lives like this. He, he seems insane to us. Now, with that understanding of Jesus's ministry in mind, go ahead and turn to chapter 9 in Mark. Keep in mind how overwhelming Jesus's ministry is and look at verse 38. John, this is John who pretty much the the major John in Scripture is like always the John you're seeing. <laughs> you kind of get confused by how many Johns. Aside from John the Baptist, the other John you see here is the author of the Gospel of John, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the John who received the vision of Revel- in, that's recorded in Revelation, or you could say the author of the book of Revelation, and the John that was at the foot of the cross. And so that's the John here, a godly, spiritual man. And he says to Jesus, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So there was a man who was not one of the 12 disciples, and I want you to notice this. It doesn't say that he was trying to cast out demons. It says that he was casting out demons. It also doesn't say that one of the disciples, even though John is the one speaking to Jesus, how many disciples were trying to stop this man, it seems? It seems all of them. There's no indication that it's anything less than all of them trying to stop this man. John says, we, he's speaking on behalf of the group. Generally, Peter is the spokesperson. But here we see John as the spokesperson for the group. And he says, we saw this man. We tried to stop him. And even notice that it says, tried to stop him, which implies what? That they... We're not able to stop him. So even all 12 of the disciples together could not stop this man from performing the exorcisms that he was. And I want to show you something that makes this particularly ironic. Look earlier in the chapter of verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered Jesus and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. So there's a father with a demon-possessed son. He tells Jesus, I brought my son, and he's foaming at the mouth. He's grinding his teeth. He becomes rigid, and it sounds incredibly terrible for a father to have to observe something like this. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and then notice this. They were not able to cast this demon out of this father's son. Can you see why I wanted you to look back at that and why this makes it particularly ironic? when we see what occurred later in the chapter? In other words, the disciples are trying to stop a man from doing what they had been unable to do. 
When, when we reach this section later in the chapter where they're trying to stop this man, I'm looking and thinking they should have been learning from him. They should have been asking him what he was doing or how he had been able to do what they had previously failed to be able to do. And second, we kind of read this, and if you're anything like me, you go through accounts and you don't give quite the attention to what you're reading that you should. And so I want to draw your attention, because I know you understand what you're seeing, but I want to draw your attention to really considering what you just read. Because it would be one thing if the disciples were trying to stop this man from lying or committing adultery or stealing or doing something sinful, but they're trying to stop this man from what? Casting out demons. And if you take notes, you can just put this in your notes. Whenever people are casting out demons, you never stop them okay? (laughs) So I look at this, and sometimes you kind of have to remember that we're dealing with the A-apostles and not the B-apostles, right? This is like the varsity. This is not the junior varsity. That was one of the lyrics in the song that my um, children sang, that these 12 people that Jesus chose were not people that anyone else in the world would have chosen, and there are some accounts like this one when you can be surprised or perhaps shocked that these are the men that Jesus wanted to do ministry with. It makes me feel encouraged that he would choose me to minister to him, uh, give me encouragement that he would do that based on some of the failures of the disciples. This is probably, you know, just right around the time they tried to stop children from reaching Jesus, where you sort of slap your forehead and think you you can't believe how foolish they're being. And so they're trying to stop this man. And then there's a couple other things I want you to notice. There's really, because you say, well, maybe they're trying to stop him, because they're unsure about whether this man was really on Jesus' side or not. But notice the words John said, in your name. So they told Jesus he's casting out demons in your name. This isn't referring to the words that he said or some magic formula that he was using. This is describing what he did. It doesn't mean he cast out demons in Jesus' name by saying certain things. It means he cast out demons in Jesus' name through the power of Christ because he was one of Christ's disciples. Fourth, at the end of verse 38, notice they said why they tried to stop him. They said, because he does not follow us. Does anything stick out to you about that? What, what would you, I mean, there's not really a very great defense of the disciples' behavior here, but you could be able to defend their behavior a little better if they said, this man is not following you. But they're concerned, which shows where their hearts are, that they're somewhat proud about being associated with Jesus, who would become the most popular, famous individual of, of his day. And it's a lesson for us. We should never want people following us. If we're ever upset that people aren't following us, then we know something's wrong. Jesus was the teacher. They're the disciples. He's our teacher. We're the disciples. Our hearts are always that, that people would follow Christ, not us. If we'd ever sense that people are following Christ, we would deflect that, point them toward Christ. Now, interestingly, the fact that John came to Jesus and said this tells you that he did not expect to be corrected. He thought he was saying something good. 
he thought he was going to be able to tell Jesus that he did this and possibly be commended at best, but at worst, not be rebuked for this behavior. He probably thought that this would impress Christ. Now, thinking about what we read in Mark 3 and how busy and overwhelmed Jesus was, how do you think Jesus is going to respond to the fact that there are other people out there removing demons from the land? He's going to be pleased with this. Look in verse 39 for Jesus' response and consider how similar it is to Moses' response, an account that I believe foreshadowed this. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So just like Moses, Jesus is looking to the results. He sees what happens, and he's rejoicing over those results. For Moses, it was people prophesying. For Jesus, it was demons being cast out. Now, not long after I started pastoring here in Washington, there's another local pastor that took me out to lunch. I'd probably been here just a few months. And I vividly remember something that he said to me while we we're eating together. He said, right now, you walk about three feet off the ground. But in the future, you're going to walk around this town, and you're going to see people who used to go to your church. Now, maybe because, and I mean this sincerely, I thought this, because of pride or because of naivety or both, I thought, well, I don't know if I said this to him, I'm sorry this happened to you, but the people that go to my church are going to continue going to my church. That's what I thought. Now, last weekend was the Planner's Day Parade, which was a wonderful day in many respects uh, for me, but as I'm, I'm walking down the street, I can kind of look to one side of the street and the other side of the street, and sometimes I'm seeing people that still go to my church, and then other times I look to the side of the street and I see what? People used to go to my church. And so this man's words, uh, you know, were fulfilled in my life and ministry. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because assuming the people that leave this church go to other churches and serve there faithfully, don't just leave our church and stop serving the Lord faithfully, but leave this church and go to another church and serve there faithfully, essentially, I have two choices. I can be like the disciples, and I can complain that those people who left this church are no longer what? With us, or no longer of us. Basically, I can be upset about these people leaving my church, or I can remember that this, this isn't really what? My church. And assuming that these people are serving at other churches, what can I rejoice about? that these people are serving at other churches, that Christ is being served, that his people are being served, that God's kingdom is being advanced. I can be thankful that God gave me a season to minister to them. I could be thankful that hopefully they grew while they were here uh, under my ministry. I can be thankful that perhaps some of the growth or maturity that they experienced here is being used to serve the Lord in a, in a greater capacity at their gaining church. Let me show you one more example. Turn to Philippians 1. Listen to these verses. Philippians 1, look at verse 15. 
Paul says, some people, or some indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So in other words, Paul is saying that some people preach Christ from bad motivations, and other people preach Christ with good motivations. And then he says in verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So this would be a good motivation. And now he talks about the bad motivation of verse 17. He says, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. But look at this. He actually said that they were preaching the gospel to try to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. I mean, imagine that for a moment. Paul knew that there were people who were out there preaching the gospel for no other reason than to hurt him. I mean, that would be an incredibly... While he's where? Where's he writing this from? He's in prison because of his ministry. And while he's in prison, and he can't be preaching the gospel, he knows there's other people preaching the gospel doing so to try to hurt him. But look what he says. Verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he could rejoice in what? He couldn't rejoice in the motivations. He couldn't rejoice in the reasons that people might be serving or preaching the gospel or active in other churches, but he could rejoice in what? The results. The things that were happening as a result of these people preaching the gospel or as a result of these people's ministries. And so for me, I look at Paul's maturity uh, as incredibly challenging and convicting because it is very evident to me that Paul did not think about himself. He did not think about what would help him. He did not think about what would advance his kingdom. He was thinking about Christ and what would advance Christ's kingdom. And this brings us to lesson two, rejoice over people, lesson two, preaching the gospel. Rejoice over people, lesson two, preaching the gospel. So if people were here, and hopefully they grew here, and they go to another church, and they do something wonderful at another church, we don't need to be jealous or covetous that they didn't do those things here. We can rejoice that those things are being done for Christ and his kingdom, even if it's at another church. And so Paul said, even if they're preaching Christ to compete with each other, even if they're preaching Christ to try to add to my affliction, even if they're preaching Christ while they're spreading lies about me, which is one of the things that was happening in Paul's ministry, he was being uh, incredibly slandered. Even if they, his apostleship was being denounced, he says, even if they're preaching Christ for financial reasons, even if they're preaching Christ for attention or for fame, I can still rejoice that they're preaching Christ. So what Paul did was he focused on these results, and he took all of the motivations, and he just left them with God. He didn't go anywhere near them. His fingerprints are not on anyone's motivations. He doesn't think about why people are doing what they're doing. He says they might be doing it for good reasons, bad reasons. That's irrelevant to me. All I care is the results that are being accomplished for the Lord through their lives. And it's a good rule for us in the Christian life that we can rejoice over the results and we can take all of people's motivations and we can leave those for God to sort out and examine, right? I mean, who's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? Not me. I can tell you that when I start 
striving to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, I usually end up being wrong. (laughs) There have been too many times that I have sought to understand other people's motivations and just found out that I was wrong in doing so. That has to be left to the Lord. Now, with this in mind, turn to Luke 15, and I'll show you what made me think of this sermon. Luke 15, verse 17. Here's the prodigal son, and it says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Now, I want to ask you to think about something and just answer me honestly. Why did the son want to return to his father? It's not a trick question. Why did he want to return to his father? He's hungry. He thought it would be better for him at home. He thought he wouldn't have to suffer as much. I guess I read this and I just thought, this isn't really what I wanted to see from him. (laughs) I'm kind of thinking after his behavior that I'm going to see a very broken individual. I'm kind of going to see someone like in the language of Luke 18, 13 with a tax collector in the parable where we read the tax collector standing afar off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breath saying, breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead of that, we've got a son that wants to go home because he thinks he can eat better. He wants to go home because he thinks the servants are enjoying life more than him. He wants to go home because he wants to end his suffering and affliction. He wants to go home because he's afraid he's going to starve to death. He wants to go home because he thought it would be better than being in some faraway land. And it just isn't a very spiritual reason, is it? It is completely physical. We're not seeing the brokenness over sin. We don't see him feeling terrible about how he has acted and rebelled against his family and betrayed this loving father who had always raised him so faithfully. We don't see brokenness over his terrible immorality and squandering the inheritance that had been given to him. So it is not a very godly reason to return to his father. In fact, it is entirely selfish, but this is what I would say about it. It doesn't matter why people want to return to the father it just matters that people want to return to the father and this brings us to lesson three rejoice over people repenting rejoice over people repenting so i would say like this sometimes people come to church or sometimes people pray. Have you ever heard the saying that there are no atheists in foxholes? How many people have become spiritual? I don't want to say believers. Okay, let me say this. How many people have become prayerful? Or how many people have swung from atheist to at least a believer and a creator the moment they got that diagnosis? Or the moment they lost the job? Or the moment their spouse was unfaithful, or the moment their friend betrayed them, they look to God, they want to turn their lives around. It's not for spiritual reasons. It could be for completely selfish reasons. 
It could be just because they want something. It could be just because they want their suffering to end. It could be just because they want that relationship restored. It could have nothing to do with the Lord and have everything to do with that individual. But we can still rejoice over what God is doing through that in that person's life that he's pointing that person toward him. Because even if they're looking to God for all the wrong reasons or entirely selfish reasons, they're still looking to God. And that's something that we can rejoice over because it's probably more than they were doing before. Or I would say like this, whatever people come through the door with bad motivations, whatever motivations they have when they enter here, we can rejoice over the fact that they came through the door and entered here and will hear the word of God. Consider these verses, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, Jesus said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So here's the thing. If someone is looking toward God or coming to church or being drawn toward the Lord, even if they don't know why or even if it's for selfish reasons, if they're being drawn to the Lord, who's doing that drawing? The Lord is. Christ said as much. Nobody has ever been drawn to the Lord apart from the Lord. Nobody has ever woken up and pursued God of their own volition. He had to quicken them or he had to stir them up. He was the initiator in the relationship. He drew them. And so even if it's happening for bad or selfish reasons, he's still sovereign and we can rejoice over them being drawn. Have you ever had an unbeliever talk to you about Christianity? Not because they want to become a believer, not because they had genuine questions about your faith, but perhaps because they wanted to criticize Christianity or they wanted to argue with you about your faith. Has that ever happened to any of you before? What can you rejoice over? The fact that you can have a conversation with an unbeliever or someone antagonistic toward Christianity about Christianity. The fact that you might have the opportunity to share some verses with someone, even if the person is totally antagonistic toward you, you are, have you ever thought about when Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door that you're being given the opportunity to share verses with people who are not Christians? I mean, that is an incredible opportunity. Does anyone know who Lee Strobel is? I suspect many of you probably do. Okay. When Lee Strobel became a Christian, was his motivation initially good or bad? <laughs> He's, if you don't know the story, Lee Strobel was a journalist, and he was a lawyer, and his wife came to faith, came, uh, became a believer, and Lee, doubting Christianity, doubting his wife's faith, is going to use his experiences, his skills as an investigative journaler, journalist and a lawyer. I mean, can you think of anyone who would be able to dismantle Christianity faster or better than an investigative journalist who also happens to be a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine anyone who could do a better job of deconstructing Christianity than this man, Lee Strobel, could have. So he goes on this pursuit of dismantling Christianity. and when it's, I mean, talk about a bad motivation. And what ends up happening? He becomes a Christian through all of his interviews and everything that he learns and studies or everything that he investigates. And then he writes this book, The Case for Christ, the subtitle, A Journalist's Personal Investigation of the Evidence for Jesus. A few weeks ago, a homosexual journalist that I'd never met before, he contacted me, 
and he wanted to talk to me about, or for, to quote me, I I suspect or suppose, that's what he said, in this article that he was going to write, and he knew why he reached out to me. Here's, I don't know exactly, I can only give you my suspicion. He knew I was a pastor, and he knew that I had written a Christian marriage book, and so he reaches out to me, and I'll read part of what he sent in his emails to me. He said, the interview is for a print article about biblical therapy. I would like to talk to you about counseling, especially as it pertains to sexual orientation or conversion therapy, as he called it. I would like to learn more about the specific kind of biblical counseling you provide to congregants or the children of congregants who come to you seeking help. He put help in quotes because I don't think he actually believes we help people who struggle with homosexuality who come to you seeking help with homosexuality, would you be able to get on the phone with me and explain what kind of counseling you would provide in such a scenario? Now, to be honest with you, I was not very thrilled about the prospect of talking to this practicing homosexual journalist who I believe would probably just want to argue with me and criticize my beliefs, and then if he did put me in his article, put me in this very ugly light and twist my words and try to make me look bad, but even more importantly, make Christ look bad, right? So, I saw an opportunity to share scriptural truth with a practicing homosexual, and perhaps, and I did ask him, I said, if you do put me in this article, can I see it ahead of time? And he said, I'll sh- I will share it to you, I'll share it with you ahead of time, I'll make sure that you feel you're represented accurately in this. And so I thought, well, there's also the potential that maybe his readers will read some of the scriptural truth that I share. So we got on the phone, and it went incredibly well, I told him that I really, there was actually a number of statements between the two of us about our appreciation for, way the, for the way the other one interacted on the phone. I told him that I really appreciated his attitude because basically there are certain things, even with a staunchest atheist or God-hating person, that you can applaud. And that's the truth. And you see it especially in Acts 17 where Paul was speaking to a bunch of pagans, but if you read the text intellectually honestly, you see that he did what with them? He complimented them. He found things to applaud. He found bridges that he could build with these people on Mars Hill who were completely antagonistic toward Christianity. And that's what you want to do. So we get on the phone, and there were many things that I could applaud about this man. He seemed sincere. He seemed genuine and interested. He was a very good listener. He seemed to take lots of notes. He said some nice, uh, positive, encouraging things to me. Some of the other positive things from the conversation, I was able to dismiss some of the myths that he had heard about Christians and our views of homosexuality, although there wasn't like some, uh, you know, super happy ending where I tell you that he repented of homosexuality and, you know, gave his life to Christ on the phone, I was encouraged that I was able to tell him what the Bible says about homosexuality And so in my mind, that is a wonderful thing to be able to tell a practicing homosexual what the Bible says about homosexuality. In a gentle but still honest way, he allowed me to to share with him sincerely. I was able to let him know that being a Christian doesn't mean being better than anyone else. I told him he had this belief that Christians think they're better than everyone else, and my response was, Christians do not think they're better than everyone else. If they thought they were better than people, they wouldn't be Christians. We become Christians because we recognize that we're what? sinners who need to be forgiven. Christians are ones who recognize that they are sinful or they wouldn't look for a savior to be saved from that sin. So I said, your belief, I don't know where it came from, 
that Christians believe they're better than others could not be further from the truth. The truth is that Christians know they're forgiven, but not better than people who are not Christians. And although I didn't sense any chance change in him on the phone, I was still thankful that I was able to share the gospel with him. I mean, the worst that could happen was I thought that he would hang up on me, but he never did. He basically stayed on the phone until he felt I'd answered all of his questions, and I would say that the result of the phone call was more important to me than his motivation in calling me. I mean, reflecting on it, I had about an hour-long conversation with a practicing homosexual that basically let me share everything with him that I wanted from God's Word. I mean, what could be more incredible than that? Now, next week, VBS, and I got a question for you. Why are many parents going to be bringing their children to VBS? <laughs> Babysitting, that's right. We're going to have a lot of parents bringing their children to the church for VBS to have a break from their children, and what is our response to that? Woohoo! Praise God! Let's rejoice over children being brought to the church. They're a captive audience for us. Their parents have brought them here for us to share Christ and God's Word. So my whole point is this. Who cares about the motivation, Right? Who cares about the motivation of, of, and now that's not to say every parent that, I mean, there's a lot of parents like me that are bringing our children for good motivations or with a good motivation, but there could be others that just want a break and, it's a, and we should rejoice over that. I'll share something with you from my testimony that I apologize ahead of time will be familiar to, to many of you. Uh, 20 years ago, I'm teaching elementary school with a few Christians. I'm becoming somewhat disillusioned with Catholicism, not completely convinced I should leave the Catholic Church, but but wondering whether this is really where I should be going to church Sundays. I'm surrounded by a few Christians who were teachers, and my uh, assistant principal at the time was a, was a Christian, and they're all inviting me to the same church, and I never went. And I kept telling them, you know, don't give up on me. Thanks for asking. I'm sorry. I, I'm not making it. And this goes on over some number of months. My brother dies of this drug overdose, and I'm struggling. And then one of the Christians comes to me, and he says this. He says, look, Scott, we've been inviting you to church for months. We all know that, and you know that, and you haven't been willing to come, and that's fine. But right now, you're really upset, understandably, about your brother's death. Would you consider coming to church now? Because, believe it or not, our pastor lost his brother when he was your age. His brother was murdered. It's not the exact same circumstances, but when our pastor was your age, he lost his brother. He had also become a Christian later in life, and why don't you just come to church to talk to our pastor about his brother. So, to be perfectly clear, I go to church this first time, and let's talk about why I didn't go to church that first Sunday. I didn't go to church that first Sunday to pray. I did not go to church that first Sunday to worship God. I did not go to church that first Sunday to hear God's word preached. I did not go to church that first Sunday to be in fellowship and meet other Christians. Or Let me just speed this up. I did not go to church that first Sunday for any of the reasons God's Word would tell us to go to church. The entire reason that I went to church that first Sunday was selfish. I was hurting, and I thought that there was somebody there who could help me. I didn't want to continue feeling like I was feeling, and I thought, if I go there, maybe this pastor will have some answers for what I'm experiencing. And I don't know if I ever told you guys this, I didn't even get to talk to him that first Sunday. And I was already looking forward to returning the following Sunday because I went in and someone handed me a Bible. I sat down and the pastor told us to open our Bibles. I still remember to 1 Peter. 
And because I'd grown up in the Catholic Church convinced that the Bible is this taboo cryptic book that nobody can understand, when the pastor read a verse and then very simply and plainly explained it, my life changed because for the first time I was convinced that God was speaking to me through his word. And I walked out that Sunday counting the days until I could return the following Sunday. And I heard the gospel and became a Christian, perhaps before I even got to sit down with that pastor and talk to him about my brother. So my point is, I went to this church for selfish reasons. But here's what I think. Looking back on that 20 years ago, when I went to that church for selfish reasons, thank God I went to that church for selfish reasons. Thank God that he drew me to a church following my brother's death when I had no interest in praying, worshiping, having a relationship with him, repenting of my sin, hearing the gospel. There was not one single good motivation I can look back on, but I just thank God for the results, which I can rejoice over. Let me conclude with this. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, it says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There is a lot of planting and there is a lot of watering happening in this church and the other churches in this community throughout the world. Hopefully, we're planting and watering throughout our Christian lives. Who makes it grow? Everything we sow, everything we water, who makes it grow? I mean, it's such a perfect analogy because if you've ever planted something, you know, despite your best efforts, you can't make something grow. God is the one who has to provide that growth. So we can rejoice over the results or we can rejoice over the growth and we can leave all the motivations in God's hands because he's the one at work. He's the one who's able to take our little efforts and turn those efforts into something great. He's able to make all things work together for good. He's the judge of the earth who can judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. He can take these poor or lame motivations of ours or of others, like a son's desire for food, and then he can turn that into the greatest parable in human history. And so we want to leave all those motivations to him. Our God can do those things, and we can rejoice over them. Father, we thank you for that. I know that it was hot this morning, Lord, and I pray that people are still able to be attentive and that you'd plant in their hearts the things that were shared during this sermon. Help us not to deal with the motivations. Help us to leave those with you and to focus on the results that we can rejoice over. I thank you this was a discouraging month for Christians, at least it began that way with, with the celebration of homosexuality, uh, this being Pride Month, but it looks to me like something you flipped on its head, Lord, with this great victory over Roe v. Uh, Wade, Lord, and I utter what Pastor Nathan prayed, that this would be a journey, not one that we think we've reached the finish line, but we would continue praying as things now go down to a state level that's not it's not done yet. We, we know there's still a battle to be fight. Help us to engage in it spiritually uh, through prayer, Lord. I pray for this next week in VBS. We just bring it before you. We pray that even now you'd be stirring up parents to bring their children. We've tried to share about it on social media. We pray people might see it there or there would be neighbors that would invite their neighbors and they would bring their children. But for those people that you know should be here next week, Lord, we pray that you would stir them up to bring their children, provide the volunteers and the, and the ministry that we need here to minister to, to these precious children who will be in our doors next week. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to share the gospel with them, and we thank you for the blessing it is to not have to worry about the motivations, but to be able to rejoice over the results. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.